Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Jeff Smith, who's the author of Ferguson in Black and White. It's a really interesting book, not just in the way it's been published, but also in what Jeff has to say about this issue. It brings to the topic a lot of very firsthand experience with the area and also a political scientist's eye towards detail. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Jeff. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown. I'm talking to Jeff Smith, who's the author of the just-released Ferguson in Black and White. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Heath? Uh, I'm doing great, and I've been looking forward to talking to you about your book. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it, it's a real pleasure. Um, I, I know some things about you, but maybe you can share just a little bit more about uh, where you are now, um, what your background is. Okay. So I'm uh, an assistant professor of politics and advocacy at the Milano School, uh, which is the Graduate School of International Affairs, Management, and Urban Policy at the New School in New York City. Um, I am a former Missouri State Senator. I represented St. Louis City. Uh, and before that, I was a congressional candidate uh, who narrowly lost a 10-person primary in 2004. I was born and raised in St. Louis. Uh, grew up just a few minutes south of Ferguson and uh, spent a ton of time on the basketball courts and in gyms there growing up uh, as, as a as a young uh, uh, kid who who pretty much spent most of my childhood on basketball courts. Yeah, and and this absolutely shapes your perspective uh, on this issue. It shapes your perspective in the book. Um, and in, and, in, and in talking about this, it's hard to separate, you know, what, what you know from about the city from your firsthand experience from what you uh, have, have researched. And, and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about St. Louis. You, you write at the, the, I think it's chapter three, you write in St. Louis, uh, parochialism is inextricably intertwined with race. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by this. And also in answering that, um, I wonder if you could describe just a little bit about what you knew about this suburb prior to the shooting of Michael Brown. Tell us, tell us about the city that you're from. Hey, the city I'm from, uh, St. Louis is a very parochial place. I, I tell a story, I think, in, in the chapter to which you refer uh, from the 1850s, 60s, 70s. At that point, the steamboat interests were the most powerful people in St. Louis. It was a trading city on the western frontier. Uh, and the steamboat interests really um, kind of shaped the, the direction of economic development in the city. Their uh, railroads were, were then becoming kind of a big deal, and Chicago wanted to build a railroad, and St. Louis, uh, people thought, because at, for briefly it was larger than Chicago, would be the ideal place to have the terminal of uh, a railroad, or so to have the focus of a railroad that reached out to California. Of course, the steamboat interest didn't like that idea because they thought that it would steal some of their business. Uh, and so they fought it for decades. Chicago got out ahead of St. Louis, and ultimately we know where that ended. You know, Chicago now the, the fourth biggest city in the country, and St. Louis proper um, is somewhere, I think, around uh, 
uh, you know, in the 60s, 70s, probably near Stockton, California. So right, right. and St. Louis had been bigger for, than Chicago St. for some. St. Louis was larger than Chicago throughout most of the 1800s, uh, and then you know, even as late as as the early 1900s, you know, St. Louis had um, almost 900,000 people in 1950, and now has just over a third of that. So. A lot of people see Detroit as a prototypical example of urban decline, but St. Louis has lost as high, about the exact percentage of people Detroit has. So why is this important? Why do I tell the story about steamboats uh, and, and rail lines? Because I think it says a lot about St. Louis. Cities that have always thought of themselves as growing cities with expanding pies, like in Atlanta, uh, maybe in Dallas, uh, I feel like people think of economic development and, other, and just things more generally as like, hey, Let's all be a part of it, and let's make the pie bigger, and we'll each get a bigger piece of a bigger pie. But in St. Louis, there's always been sort of a, a parochialism, a, a myopia, if you will, and people have tenaciously guarded their own little fiefdoms, whether they be economic or political. And uh, I think that's, that's um, a, really something that really plays into to Ferguson. And here's how. St. Louis City decided to secede from St. Louis County in 1876. And St. Louis County uh, eventually, um, people through exclusionary zoning and other techniques, uh, formed 90 separate towns within one county. Ferguson was one of those towns. And Ferguson was formed, it was an all-white town, and in fact a sundown town, where blacks were supposed to be gone by dusk. And that uh, exclusionary mentality which you see in other cities, but I think not to the degree uh, that St. Louis is, is fragmented by race and class, uh, helps explain a lot of the underlying problems in North St. Louis County. One of the people that you, you write about um, is Albert Walton Jr. Uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about who Albert Walton Jr. was, is, um, and, and how he fits into the story. Albert Walton Jr. was a state representative uh, in Missouri from 1978 till 1992. He was uh, always seen as sort of a militant guy. He was an African-American who represented majority black districts throughout North St. Louis City. Uh, and then his district got pushed out to parts of North St. Louis County, and he moved his political base out to the county. Soon, uh, he lost after the 1990 redistricting, but he wanted to stay active, and as part of his political activity, he started a political action committee called Unity Pack. What it sought to do was, as suburbs changed from being overwhelmingly white to slowly integrated and then soon majority black, he tried to unify black voters to get out these aging white uh, power structures out of office. That seems like a fairly noble cause, and in, because we know that one of the problems in Ferguson is the disconnect between the majority black town and the overwhelmingly white power structure. The problem is, when Elbert Walton started to win some races uh, on school boards and fire district boards, instead of actually achieving this new political power to do right by the community, he sucked a lot of these communities dry by getting legal contracts with entities and then sucking millions of dollars of wealth from the taxpayers of struggling communities. That was consequential from an economic perspective because it hurt a lot of people who were already on the margins. But more importantly, from a political perspective, it indicated to a lot of white voters in North St. Louis County, it confirmed their worst suspicions about black elected officials and uh, made it much more difficult 
for young aspiring black uh, black politicians to win cross the crossover votes they would need to 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 get into office. So this gives us a little bit of a sense of this place, uh, a place that you know mo- most people just didn't know very much about that that you knew a lot about going in. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about when you first heard of the shooting of Michael Brown. Um, I suspect you you, uh, probably heard about it before most people did. And what your initial reaction was? Was this something that you heard that that made sense? Um, Or was this something that took you as great surprise? What what was your reaction? What did you hear about this? And and how did you respond? I heard about it the day of the shooting um, that Saturday afternoon when I... uh, was on Twitter and people I follow, you know, I was actually like, a, it was a cab driver um, who's an old friend of mine uh, who grew up in North City in North County. Uh, he's a Muslim, um, fascinating guy and very, very like deeply connected to, to people on the ground. And he started tweeting about what was going on uh, as, the, as a crowd gathered, a very angry crowd gathered as Mike Brown's body lay uh, baking in the heat for four and a half hours af- at that afternoon. So that was when I first started to he- hear some rumbling. Later that night, things escalated, uh, and I realized this was going to be a big deal. Um, so pretty early on, uh, you asked what I knew about Ferguson, and, and I, like I said, I was um, when I was in grad school at Washington University. I'm, I'm a political scientist, uh, and I was teaching as an adjunct while I was finishing my doctorate. I was teaching as an adjunct at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, which is about 30 seconds from Ferguson. So I used to be in these traffic courts all the time because I was always late to, to teaching, and I had a, mm-hmm. a part-time job as a delivery man. I delivered vanilla extract, almond extract for a company to, to about 120 grocery stores. And um, I was sort of a young man in a hurry in a lot of respects, and, and part of that meant that uh, I was usually going 20 to 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. So I was in all these traffic courts. I was the white guy in a traffic court with 70, 80, 90 black people uh, almost every month for a few years of my life. And so I saw the simmering rage that, uh, that the country would soon see that formed in North St. Louis County as a result of just decades of terrible interactions between communities and law enforcement. Now you spent a lot of time reading, I'm sure, everything that, that's publicly available uh, about this case, and you've also talked to, interviewed, uh, been in in the the community much more than anyone else. I wonder if you could just sort of separate out for us right now where consensus has been reached about what has happened, and where there's still disagreement. Uh, without getting into all of the legal back and forth, little. You know, what are we? What are we at this point? What are we clear about? And and where is there? Where is it still gray? So what do we know? Well, we know that Mike Brown uh, was walking in the middle of the street with his best friend. We know that the cop shouted something to him. We know that his friend said something back, which uh, which began, which initiated a, a conflict. We know that um, there was a, a scuffle ensued which is partially inside of and partially outside of the police car between Mike Brown and Officer Wilson. Uh, we know that two gunshots went off at that point. We don't know why. Um, Darren Wilson says that it was because Mike Brown was grabbing for his gun. Dorian Wilson said that uh, the officer had threatened to, to shoot Brown in advance of, of that. Brown then ran. He ended up running uh, 
about 100, I think, 70 feet away from the car. At one point, uh, and, and Officer Wilson gave chase. Ground swiveled, turned around, and here's where there's some dispute. 17 people who are eyewitnesses say that at that point, Ground had his hands up. Uh, two witnesses say that he continued, that he was charging towards Officer Wilson. Uh, so the number, you know, more, far more witnesses say he had his hands up than the number who say he was charging Wilson. Wilson says, of course, that, that Brown was uh, this hulking figure who was, looked like he was going to run right through the bullets. Uh, he compares his strength to, to Hulk Hogan, you know, and said that he felt like a five-year-old fighting Hulk Hogan, and that caused him to fear for his life. And at that point, uh, the officer, Officer Wilson put several more bullets into Mike Brown, the kill shot going through uh, Brown's forehead. Now, there's obviously a lot, a lot that happened after that, and I wonder if you can, you know, put, put on both your political science hat, but as you mentioned in the beginning, you also are someone who teaches about and studies advocacy. I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about um, this, what what's happened from a political perspective. Um, the reaction of, of the various political interests in the area in Ferguson, St. Louis, and the larger communities. What sense do you make of this? Is is has the has what's happened politically been something that um, you you expected, or have there been surprises in the way certain groups have have responded, either positively or negatively? So, what's happened politically? Well, the white political power structure, white Democrats, have been either silent or. Uh, strongly have supported the prosecutor for the most part, Prosecutor Bob McCullough, who... And you mean locally? I mean locally, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, Governor Nixon, you know, mm-hmm. uh, from the municipal level in St. Louis to statewide, most white Democrats have been strongly supportive of uh, McCullough and his prerogative to, to keep the case as opposed to turning it over to a special prosecutor. Um, many black Democrats, though not all, have supported the activism that grew up around the, the case uh, on the ground. Am I surprised by the white power structure's response? Not really. In St. I represented a majority black district in St. Louis City, and people used to say in St. Louis City there are two parties. There's white Democrats and there's black Democrats. And, you know, I saw that up close and personal as a white guy in a majority black district. Uh, there wasn't a day of my life that went by during that time that I didn't think about race. Uh, and there were some days when I thought about little else. So the stark divide between the perceptions of the case and the responses by various politicians have not surprised me. The activism and, you know, all the protests they have not surprised me either. I had identified or had sort of perceived this simmering anger for decades in North St. Louis County. I talked a little bit about the municipal fragmentation earlier, Heath, and uh, that fragmentation means that there are towns, many towns have, there are some towns that only have 15 people living in them, many other towns that only have three, 400, and yet almost every one of the towns out of the 90 in St. Louis County has its own police force. The, du- mm-hmm. the duplication is ridiculous. Uh, I've written about this in, in various forums, but this this duplication has put a huge reliance, an over-reliance, I'd argue, on a lot of these towns to pull people over to generate revenue for their towns. There are, these, there are towns that don't have a single business, but they have their own police force and fire department, and uh, the pressure to pull people over and that combined with the disconnect 
between white power structures and, and white law enforcement versus black residents has created a very toxic mixture, the result of which we've watched play out. Now, when, when you talk in those terms, it seems like the, the solutions, they may, they may not be easy, but they're somewhat obvious. Consolidation would be one of those. Are there aspects of this that, that, you, um, that, that you're not hopeful about, that, that, that strike you as intractable, and, and, and this, this case has simply drawn attention, but that, that aren't going to be addressed in, in any obvious or, or near-term kind of way. Yeah, there's, there's aspects about which I'm hopeful, but there's probably more aspects about which I'm not. Frankly, the divide, the racial divide, I think, has never been more stark in St. Louis. Nearly all the white people I talked to, say, during the wait for the grand jury, said things like, why can't these people just wait and let the process work? Not, of course, realizing or taking the time to, to think that these are people for whom the process has never worked. Through decades of segregation and centuries before that of slavery and, you know, more recently, uh, targeting and discrimination by police in housing, in education, in so many other realms. So, I think there's a lot of white people that still have kind of refused to, to look at the city's shameful racial history. Um, I also think that the black leadership, political leadership has not been very constructive. Uh, there have been some who have, some black political leaders who have, you know, supported the activism and strong and voiced uh, a lot of possible solutions. There have been others that have simply used this as an opportunity for self-promotion and demagoguery. So, what solutions am I hopeful about? I'm hopeful that we can reduce the percentage of revenue that a lot of these towns get from traffic stops. Uh, right now, as I said, some towns get half the revenue from traffic stops. That's crazy. And there's a law in the books that limits it to 30%. We need to put teeth in that law, and we need to reduce the number from 30% to 10%. I'm less hopeful that we can address some of the other root causes of this. The economic desperation that plagues North County 20, 30, 40% unemployment among young black males in some of these towns. And we need structural solutions to that that starts with a better education system. Some of the school districts in these, in these areas have lost their, accredit their state accreditation. Their performance is, is abysmal. Uh, half of kids drop out in some of these areas. And uh, until we either have the political will to put real resources to improve these schools or have open enrollment whereby we let these kids go to any school district in the county that they choose, uh, we're not going to see real, you know, structural economic solutions uh, that help these people lead a better life and uh, as opposed to, to the very frustrating life that many of them lead. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting book. The way you published it is also very interesting. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about, about um, uh, that, that aspect of this. This is a book that uh, you must have written very, uh, quite quickly and has gotten out there quickly. And as a result, as, as we're still talking about the issue, we have your book uh, as, as an aid uh, rather than waiting two or three years, which we often have to wait. So would you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, Heath. Um, you're somebody who's clearly very interested in current affairs and, and political events. Um, anyone who follows you on Twitter is acutely aware of this. And uh, I think it's great what you're doing to try to, you know, connect political science and make it relevant to, to current affairs. And, you know, you've been a leader in the discipline on that. Um, I'm someone who, you know, also has is sort of betwixt in between academia and uh, and political life. 
um, as a former politician myself and as someone who closely uh, follows current affairs, I wanted to get this out quickly. Um, it, the book wasn't really so much my idea as uh, I wrote a piece in the New York Times and then an essay in the New Republic about Ferguson uh, in the week after the, uh, the shooting. And then um, my agent was in touch with Amazon uh, that has a publishing arm um, specifically and one of their imprints is specifically aimed at stories like this. Things that are very timely, uh, things that, you know, that there's a lot of history, there's stuff that needs to be said that's longer than an article, but maybe not long enough for a full length book. And so, you know, I turned in about a hundred page manuscript six weeks after the shooting. Uh, and uh, then we, you know, did a little editing on that, got it down to about 80 or so pages, and it's called a Kindle single. So the idea is that, that it's a length that people can digest in one long plane flight uh, or, you know, one long sitting, you know, during an evening, and it can get to market digitally instead of in print uh, within a few months. So uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. You know, I think it's just a really interesting thing. I, You know, the... Um, as a result, it's, it, it, I think it has such an interesting audience. I can imagine this being adopted for courses as well. Um, anyone who is trying to integrate sort of on-the-fly uh, uh, subject matter um, and, and doesn't want to rely upon simply newspaper accounts and wants to rely upon um, experts like yourself, this is just a great way to, to get to this information. In particular, your book, uh, which is uh, called Ferguson in Black and White, is, is available on Kindle and um, I, I think that it's something that really can help people both within the academy but outside make sense of the, the complexity of issues that uh, um, this issue raises. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for your time today. Heath, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything you're doing, again, to try to connect uh, uh, the rigor of academic work with uh, current affairs. It's, it's a great service. Yeah, we'll, we'll hope to have you on back soon. Thank you. 